All right. Well, before we jump in, I um, want to pray about a couple of things. One, um, this is, some of you probably are aware of, you may not have run into the traffic of it from the first service, but just right up the road, there was a car accident involved, a Brook Hill bus and, uh, and, some, and some other people, but um, the students seem to be all fine. Everybody at Brook Hill's okay, but there was a fatality in the other vehicle at least, and so we're going to pray for them. Also, um, uh, Lance Sturrock's father passed away in the last couple of days, and so um, we need to be praying for their family as well, and I want to pray for those in the midst of, there's, there's plenty. We've talked about before how every Sunday, everybody shows up very different. Um, we, we are different from one another and in so many different ways, and one of those is what we've experienced this week. For some people, this was a great week, and for some people, this has been a hard week. We have new babies born this week, and we also have new foster families this week, um, and then some of the tragedies and traumas like we just talked about, and so um, that's, that's what it's like to come to church. And some people are excited about coming to church, and some people are scared about church every week, and, and uh, man, it's, it's just such a fascinating thing for God to bring us together like this, and so... I really do pray that, that today's experience um, through God's word and as, as we have been through worship will be, um, will be significant for you. Um, also, I also want to take a second and just say, like, it, it's, it's really cool that I get to do this. Um, and I, I very much so appreciate that. And I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. Like, it's, it's a neat thing to, to be able to study God's word every week and, then, and even to have my job require me to do it so that... Like everybody else, when there's a week, I just have the advantage of, of when there's a week that I just don't feel like it, like happens to everybody, I still have to. And so, um, and so it's like a discipline that is imposed. Like I, I was talking this morning to somebody who, um, we were using this example about when they went through basic training. I said, it's kind of like trying to decide whether or not to get in shape when you're in basic training. Like, I mean, you're going to, right? I mean, you don't, you don't have a choice about it. Like there are some days you feel like, yeah, you feel gung-ho about it. And other days you're like, I don't really feel like getting up and doing push-ups this morning. But I bet you do. And so that's a, it's kind of the, and so it's such an advantage. And to get to teach through like the book of John like this for, for probably at least a couple of years, um, not every church is, is willing to allow that kind of stuff to happen and to be discouraged by that. And instead, the, the positive feedback on that, it's, it's just a huge blessing, honestly, to, uh, to get to be the pastor here. And, uh, and I know that applies to others on the, the rest of the staff as well. Um, today, the reason Paul isn't here is because he's heading out to Israel to go actually teach in Israel with, um, with the uh, Forge students, with the Pine Cove ministry that we're, we partner with. And that's just a, and a great, what a great blessing um, for him to get to do that. For John to get to lead the way he does, including this Wednesday, if you missed uh, the Wednesday night night of worship, I'm going to strongly recommend you don't ever do that again. Don't ever miss that again. It was fantastic, and people came up afterwards saying, um, how many more of these can we do, and, and how do we get the word out? And so this is, it was really a time, a really a potent time to worship. And as we study worship today, um, really through maybe, maybe, maybe arguably one of the greatest examples in all of human history, um, it's, it's really powerful. And then finally, I want to thank you also that um, uh, you have chosen the leadership board that you have. And so if we could get those pictures up and you can see um, the leadership board you've chosen for this next year, um, is such a blessing. Now listen, anyone on this year, the last few years, anyone on that was nominated, this church's ability now to nominate people and to then select people to be the leaders for this church is incredible. And it's one of the things that I actually feel embarrassed about when I talk to other pastors and we talk about the leadership, um, as they're talking about the frustrations they have to deal with with the leadership and, or their, their elder team or their deacon team or whatever, however their church is structured with that. And for me to get to go like, yeah, I mean, we have a great team, and we have since we've been in existence. And so 
Um, these, these are awesome people, godly people, people who believe in God's word and, 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 and love God and are called according to his purposes and, and uh, who really want to lead the way God would have us lead. And so I want to pray again for this team as well um, with all of these together. So if you will, let me pray and then we will jump into John chapter 12. Um, Father, we're so grateful for what you're doing and what you continue to do in our lives. Um, God, I pray for these who have been involved in the accident this morning. I know that there are probably every Sunday morning, there are probably car accidents in Tyler. Um, we just know about this one, so Lord. We pray for those involved in the trauma of that and the tragedy of losing somebody in the midst of that, um, how hard that must be. Father, we pray for Lance and John and the rest of the Sturrock family as they are um, uh, dealing with the death of Lance's dad, um, John's grandfather, and I pray that you, would, uh, that you would bring them comfort as only you can. Um, Father, as, as Paul lead, heads off to Israel, I pray for that team, that that would be a great time, that their travel would be safe, <clears throat> and that they would have an awesome time of connecting to you in a new and powerful way with the, the dirt under their feet um, that your son walked on when he was here on earth. And Father, I, I, just, I lift up uh, our leadership board, the leadership of this church. I'm so grateful for them. I pray that they would be um, uh, trust in, not in their own understanding, all of us, that we instead would, um, in all our ways, acknowledge you. I ask that you would make our path straight. Um, Father, we ask that you would be our best thought, that you would be our vision, that you would be our wisdom um, as we go through this year. Thank you for this church and the opportunity to serve here and the blessings to do so. I love these people, Lord, and I thank you very much for who you send this way, and I pray that we will love them well in your son's magnificent name and through the sanctifying work of your spirit. Amen. Okay, now in John chapter 12, this is, we're jumping into a, a, a really significant, we're now going to make a shift in the book of John. And so if, there is a, if there's a midpoint in the book of John, you would, it's not based on the chapters, it's based on the beginning of this chapter, the, the verse beginning of this chapter. Up until now, we've been dealing with, because remember in the book of John, we don't get anything about the birth of Jesus. We have the, we have the, we have the account of the pre-existent Jesus Christ, the word that was with God and the word that was God. We have the the connection to, God, to Jesus Christ as God who has existed before the creation of anything else. Um, and, and we're going to talk some today about the fact, and, and, and next week as well. So if, if I do like I did in the first service, I will get almost exactly halfway through today's sermon. Um, and so, which is good, means next week's sermon is ready to go. Uh, but it just, it just it gets so entangled and caught up in the message of the beginning of this sermon. I mean, I we should have known this, and we kind of guessed at it, and John, John kind of called it a little bit, but the, the, it's, it's still amazing how powerful the beginning of this is as we look at this. And so um, understanding this is about to shift because we're, we're in John chapter 12, which is the last week of Jesus's life before the crucifixion. And we're going to reference for the rest of the book many times the fact that John that John, the author of the book of John, the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the author of the book of Revelation, that John is the last apostle alive. He's the last of the 12 who is still alive. And John was probably writing this stuff in the 80s, 80 and 90. Uh, most of the other stuff in the Bible was written around in the AD 60s, probably, before the fall of the temple in AD 70. What that means is John, at the time that some of this stuff is happening, John is probably a, just a child, just a little, just a boy. So what we have in the, book of, in the book of John in this account is we have a, a guy who probably at the crucifixion, there's a good indication he had not yet had his bar mitzvah, which means he was probably under the age of 12. 
So you should be imagining John around age probably 11 or 12 at the oldest here at the time of Jesus walking around. And in AD 90, when he's writing Revelation, I mean, you need him to be pretty young in AD 30 if in AD 90 he's still writing, especially back in this day. So John has had 30 years to think about the doctrines that Jesus taught longer than any of the other apostles. He has, he's had 30 years more time to think about it, to, to ruminate on it, to study it. Plus, he has the advantage of having the writings of these other apostles, of these other leaders of the church, like Matthew. So he has Matthew's gospel. He has Mark's gospel, which is probably Peter's notes. So you have, he, he has the, the gospels of these key people. The researcher, Luke, he probably, John probably has copies of them. Almost certainly. In fact, I, I think it's almost without debate, but he had these. He probably had the writings of Paul in front of him and all the theological interpretation that the apostle Paul does. John has that after they're long dead, maybe for 30 years. And for some of that time, he's sitting on an island all by himself, probably going through this material, wrestling through it. That's why his is so much more theologically deep because he's had so much longer to wrestle through these thoughts. And so while Matthew and, and Luke begin with the birth of Jesus, John begins with the pre-existence of Jesus, the existence of Jesus as God. Yeah, the birth is significant, but to John, well, that's in writing. You can read what Matthew and Luke say about that. Let me tell you about before that. So here we're going to have, we're going we're to see this come out in John's sophisticated understanding. He is writing stuff that Matthew, Mark, Luke didn't mention, and probably part of it's because John gets it in a way that they didn't when they were writing it. He's had more time to think about it. He's had more time to engage with it. He's had more of the aha moments of the Holy Spirit going, yeah, I think about that. So that's part of what we're going to be facing. But keep in mind, chapter 12 begins this way, six days before Passover. That's how it begins. That tells us, this is the Passover in which Jesus did, the Passover festival in which Jesus is going to be crucified. And, and so we're in the last week of the life, the Passion Week. And John tells us that it's six days before, so Jesus comes to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now we see just in the last chapter, verse 55, the Jews' Passover was near at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. We're going to come back to that thought. The purification before the Passover is significant. See, the people of Israel are supposed to be pure. The men of Israel who are supposed to celebrate Passover are commanded to do so even if they're impure. They just have to have other people take certain roles for them. Well, they don't want to do that. That's kind of a public acknowledgement of, of impurity. So they're going up to the temple. They're going up to, to Jerusalem a week in advance to learn and to be purified, ritually purified by the leaders of the temple. So here we have just a few days Various types of purification take six or seven days, so they're going to need to go up in advance. So that's where they are. Now, one of the things, much, even though so much is known about this week called the Passion Week, there's so much is known, also it's shocking what we don't know about the Passion Week. It's shocking the distinctions. We actually don't know the days of the week that are going on. All of the authors will say things like, it was six days before this, or it was three days before that, or it was one day after this, or the next day, but they don't ever give you a starting date. And so it's difficult to know exactly where they are. I don't, you may not know this, but years ago, when the, for the first time I discovered it, I was going to do a weekend retreat with some guys during Easter, and I thought, let's set up something so that we know on the hour, on every hour, what happens. 
Okay? On each hour of the day of, of Passover, I mean, the day of Easter and the day before and the day before, whatever that. And so I typed in Easter timeline, and that's when I discovered there is huge debate. Hold on to that. Go back a couple. Hold on to these. Um, there's a huge debate over even what, what the Passover, I mean, what the Easter week looks like. What even Easter day? What day Jesus died is in no way accepted in Christianity. The traditional date, of course, is Good Friday. But there's lots of reasons to doubt that. That's, that's, even that is all based on the fact that the next day was a Sabbath, but this is Passover. There's an annual Sabbath and a weekly Sabbath. And so it's, it's, isn't that shocking that here we are in the most important week of human history, and not only do we know what we know is significant, but what we don't know is so weird. So people have tried to create great calendars to explain it like this, but notice on top of the issue that we have of even just following through any individual book like Matthew, this seems to be a good guess at what that we, the Passion Week looked like in Matthew. But Matthew's only one of the four Gospels. And Matthew's what, what Matthew, Matthew notes as significant and in certain orders isn't the same as what the other Gospel writers. So we have Luke's. I think Luke is next. Yeah. So here's, here's an example of Luke. As Westerners, listen, as Westerners, you need to know, we, we want photography when it comes to history right? We want everyone to have the exact same experience. We want to be able to look at the picture and see who was there and who wasn't there and what order it happened. We want video recordings of things. That is not history. The minute you decide to find something as history, it is interpreted. The instant. If you, if you tell me about when you and your spouse got together, you, you shorthand things. You put things together. You make one story seem nearer to the other story than it actually happened. If you've done it a lot of times, like Ginger and I do, you actually have a script. I tell this story, and then at the end, she finishes the sentence, and she starts the next story, and then we both, and then we sometimes, in comedy, disagree about one story, because we are, but it's not like we're really disagreeing. We've told this story 5,000 times, and so we know, like, like you, again, you've all done this, right? That if somebody went back in time, they might go like, wow, you really seem to put these things near each other, but they were actually far apart. Or why you Because history is actually a painting, not photography, and Jewish history, much more so, because Jewish history is all about the emphasis about what's significant, what is true, what is important, necessarily even more significant than what literally happened in certain orders. They, they still, that is still how they do their history, by the way, which is hard for us as Westerners, because we want it all to make sense, we want it to all fit together, we want it to all work perfectly. So in addition to the fact that even just if all we had was the book of John, it would be hard to tell what day certain things happen and in what order. Even if we just had Matthew, it would be difficult to tell. When you start putting them together, it becomes really tough. When a Westerner engages, when Western thinkers engage with the four Gospels about the last week of Jesus, you get something like this. This is an effort to put all of them into the same storyline. It's complicated, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's tough to do. This is hard for us, but here's what's cool. What is shocking from a historical perspective, isn't that they emphasize different things. See, I think it's natural for us as sometimes as, as evangelical Christians to think that what happened was that John sat down to write, he got his ink, he got his pen, and he sat there, and his eyeballs rolled back in his head, his head locked back, and he started writing. And when he woke up from his trance, he read it for the first time because the Holy Spirit possessed him, and it wrote for him, and it, but that's not the case. Instead, what we're dealing with is the fact that 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 the Holy Spirit works through John. And John, what John thinks is significant and what the Spirit speaks through John 
And so he emphasizes different things, makes certain points. In fact, one of the things that's coolest is to realize that John writes the Gospel of John and the Passion Week with copies of Mark, Matthew, and Luke sitting in front of him. Maybe he has copies of Gospels we have lost sitting in front of him and still chooses sometimes to not collude, to not just follow exactly what they say. See, if they were all identical, that would be the complaint. It would be collusion. Obviously, it's an invented religion. I mean, if you have four different people, <coughs> a second-hand person, two first-hand people, and a researcher, and they sit down, and they get, they get around a table, and they go, okay, which version are we going to agree to? Which would, what do we, that's collusion. That's an invented religion. When you have four people that different across dozens of years doing, asking dozens of different people and remembering it as best they can decades later, the fact that the story, the message, the power is the same is a miracle. Humans don't do that. It is, it is amazing the level of cohesion that is there without collusion is amazing. It's a, it's a miracle. It's what, I, as a psychologist, I will tell you, if their stories were identical, I'm not sure I could tolerate it. It would be, for someone like me, that would be really tough. That would indicate to me they sat down and were like, uh. I love the fact that Matthew and Luke read, read Mark and said, here's what I'm gonna emphasize. Partially because Mark has, has emphasized something else. I mean, it makes sense that John wouldn't talk about some things. He's going, well, you've already got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You don't, you don't need me to talk about that again. That looks good to me. We'll go with that. So it is a powerful thing. I want you to have that because as we dive into this week, you're going to see that. And if you're reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the same time, you're going to be going, wow, that's, they're really emphasizing different things. And I'll bring this to our attention a few times as we're, as we're going through this. But I want to take a second and clarify that. Um, let's try it for this one event, though. As best we can, Jesus comes in from Ephraim through Jericho, running into Zacchaeus and bringing along a throng of people with him. Now, we don't know exactly what's going to happen next, but what seems to happen next is that they then stop in Bethany and have a meal in honor of Lazarus and Jesus at the home of a man named Simon the leper, probably someone else who Jesus has healed. We can't know exactly that this is the timeline. This is just as good a guess as any. Um, Mark does not mention Simon the leper at this stage. He, the, 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 he has a feast with Simon the leper later in the week. But here they have, this is, seems to be what's significant, and then right after that is probably the triumphal entry, is when Jesus, which we will get to in a few weeks. Um, actually, we will celebrate it in a few weeks and teach about it in a few weeks. Um, so my, my, what I, here's where I ended on this thought. It, it really is hard to tell. It's feasible that two different women within the same week do the same thing, but I'm going to go with the majority and say that probably this is the same story, just talked about it from two different perspectives in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, we'll have to wait for the Passover week seminar in the New Jerusalem. Um, so when we get there and they do the Passion Week seminar, we can go because I hear that Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Mark, and John will be there to clear up any misconceptions. Um, I'm not going to be able to do that for you all the way. It's intriguing, but it's hard for us as Western thinkers to engage with this well. We want a, a schedule. We'll be able to pull out our iPhones and put it on our iCalendar and to put what happened next and what happened then and what, and it feels hard to us not to engage with that. But the power, wait till you see the power of what we're learning in the midst of even our own uncertainty. It's okay. Verse two. Verse two says, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now, we're gonna, we're gonna emphasize Mary today. But I don't want us to minimize Martha. 
So we know, we know a little bit about Martha. Martha got in a little bit of trouble earlier in this, in Jesus' relationship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus because Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet learning from him and Martha is bustling around taking care of things. She's serving, which there's nothing wrong with. I think sometimes Martha gets a little bit criminalized and sometimes for the wrong thing. It's not wrong that she's serving. What's wrong is that her attitude in serving is apparently wrong because she decides to come and kind of confront, chastise Jesus for not calling out her sister Mary. And, and, and Jesus tells her, it's a very sweet little conversation that Jesus has with her. He's like, Martha, listen, you're worried about so much, but there's really only one thing that matters. And, and Mary has chosen well. The issue isn't that Mary should or should not be serving or that Martha should, not or should or should not be serving. The issue is Martha is serving with the wrong attitude and Mary is sitting with the right attitude. And so the idea would be Jesus' teaching here is that we should, whether we serve or sit, the attitude that we have is what we, need to, what we need to be focused on. Are we sitting in worship? Are we serving in worship? There's nothing wrong. By the way, you notice Jesus is not going to chast, say a word to Martha at all about serving here. It's totally appropriate. This is her gift. This is her heart. And we have to assume that this was her way of communicating how appreciative she is. Maybe she's the one who set up this dinner at Simon's house. She's the one serving at the dinner even though it's not her house. That's, that's a pretty amazing picture. Maybe she has set up this whole banquet for Jesus and la- to honor Jesus and to honor her brother Lazarus who is back from the dead. And you gotta love the fact that John throws this in here, by the way. And by the way, in case you were worried, Lazarus is fine. He's, he's good. He's at dinner. There's, there's not, like in case you had this sense of like, what's happened to Lazarus in the last few days or whatever, he's fine. And certainly this is here to also emphasize the fact that Lazarus is not a ghost. Hey, Jesus did not just raise a spirit from the dead. He raised a person from the dead. How do you know? He's having dinner. Ghosts don't do that. He's having dinner here at the table, reclining with Jesus, having dinner with them at the guest of honor. So though we're not going to emphasize Martha that much, I also don't want to minimize the fact that this is her serving in a a very cool way. Mary, therefore, verse 3, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment, ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I asked, when we were looking at this, I asked Paul and the rest of the team, Lance and and Clay and and Micah, if there was a way that we could say that I could make the room flood with the fragrance of nard. So it's fun, it's got to be fun working for me because that that creates the look on on their faces kind of similar to what some of yours is right now of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you even considered trying to do that. Um, I was like, could we put it in the air conditioning vents, or could we, like, what could we do? And so, and so the feasibility, the team of feasibility and rationality said, no, you don't want to do that, <laughs> one, because there's probably going to be people with allergies and, and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, today's world. Um, also, the fact that then the room smells like nard until the building is torn down uh, years from now, or maybe sooner if it smells like nard. So, um, and so what I did instead is, I'm going to have some guys come up and, and grab these, and we're going to pass these around the room. Um, I had to go through the, uh, the uh, unfortunate of, I gave away all the spike nard that I had gotten from Israel last time, and so I had to call one of those, I need some other guys to come up and grab these, and so I can, whatever, you want to grab, want to grab, there you go, to start passing them around, thank you, thank you, make sure every area gets one, there we go, let me hand this to him so he's got that, that area, so one more, um, and so, uh, so you can smell what nard smells like 
or my hands are going to smell like it anyway, and just that, that you can come up and stand near me at the end of the service. But um, so I had to go to the unfortunate call, contacting people who I gave it to, and so I'm like, can I get that back from you? Um, you got to hate to do. So I've been in Israel this time. I'm, I've used up some of hers, so I'm going to have to get some more. But um, I just want you to have that visual or that smell, not the visual. <laughs> that's exactly wrong. Um, the uh, the uh, the olfactory experience of of having a sense of what smell would have flooded this room. Now, here's, here's the idea for you to, by the way, if you go to Israel, if you get to go with us, when you go into the places that the, the Greek Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church owns, buddy, let me tell you, it all smells like that because um, they burn this stuff like crazy, um, which is obviously its connection to this. Spikenard. Now, uh, a few things for you to know about it. Um, uh, a Greek pound is about 12 ounces, so you're smelling what a tiny drop would be like, now imagine 12 ounces probably poured out on Jesus' head, running down his body, saturating his clothes, down his legs, pooling at his feet. Now this is, this is a pretty powerful picture. She is anointing his head and his feet, we find from the other, the other version of this. So the first, she gets to declare as she breaks open this alabaster jar, which, by the way, nard, if it's what we think it is, if we, if, it's, if we have the right understanding of what it is, is a spice, an oil that would have come from the, the, what would have been called at that time the Orient, India or China. And so keep in mind, that means it got, sh- it got shipped, traveled. This is in Israel. It's not easy to get things from China to Israel, especially 2,000 years ago. And so this oil would have come in an alabaster jar, sealed within the alabaster, and so you literally would have had to break the alabaster, which is what the other accounts tells us she did. She broke the alabaster open, which flooded the room with this scent, and then poured it on Jesus' head um, as it dripped down. This is in the, in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Scriptures, you anoint priests and you anoint kings. This is, this is a big deal. So she is, she is Mary is anointing him as the priestly king of Israel right here in front of everybody. This is, this is huge. Um, Judas is going to tell us, we're not going to get there today, but Judas is going to tell us that this nard, this, this alabaster pound of, of perfume is worth 300 denarii. That's one year's wages. A year's wages. In Texas, the average salary in Texas for a family, the average income is $70,000. Imagine a gift worth $70,000 that only gets to be used one time. And she chose to use it here. This is meant to be shocking. It's, it, we're, we're meant to go, wait, she did what? She did what? 70 grand? She took everything. Her entire income for a year is, is poured out on Jesus' head in a moment? Not a drop at a time. Not not to be spread over a lifetime, putting into a little, mixed in with a little jar or something, but broken open. It may be made to only be used once. Maybe the alabaster mint, it could only really be used the one time. And instead of wasting it, she dumps it on his head and anoints him completely. I don't, I don't know what would be the equivalent for us. The only thing I've ever owned in my life that was worth $70,000 was a car, 
I mean, I, I, uh, no, I don't have any cars. All my cars added together don't add up to that probably would be, would be my house and, and I don't even fully own it. Like how do you, how do you, how do I equip? Like, like I'm trying to imagine like let's say that you're a great wine collector and you collected a, a bottle of wine from, from, from decades ago. I don't even know how old would wine have to be to be worth $70,000 for a, I'm sure it exists or a, some type of whiskey or something and then going like, you know what? This is the event, we're breaking it open. How do you decide to do that? I've always wondered that. Like, how wealthy do you have to be to go? And by the way, if you're wealthy enough to have a $70,000 thing of wine, then you probably don't think twice about breaking it open, right? That's a, but here you're talking about someone who, there's no reason to think that there's a lot of wealth in this family. It's probably a single woman and, and a single woman and a single man living in a house together in Bethany, which is not exactly the heights of the Ritz. And so what, why do they own this? We don't know. Was it passed down for generations? Was it given as a gift? Was it something she had stored up for the day of her wedding, which many people think this was meant to be for her wedding night? Like, what is this meant to be? But, but instead, she takes it in this moment and pours it on Jesus, anoints Jesus' head with it. Now, you can imagine part of why she's doing this. Here you have Martha, who's done what she does best. She set up a banquet for her brother. By the way, her brother was dead. I try to imagine, like, does this seem to make any sense? Well, when you put it in that way, if Jesus had shown up and said, like, hey, it's going to cost $70,000 for me to raise your brother from the dead, that she would have said, well, of, of course, I'll figure a way to do that. But instead, Jesus, in perfect grace as a gift, raises her brother from the dead, and in response and worship, she comes and anoints him, the high priestly king. And by the way, the, John is clearly connecting this to the fact that people had shown up to Passover to be purified, and here Mary is anointing Jesus for Passover. And again, next week we'll get to the fact that Jesus interprets this moment because there's a third person who you anoint, and that is a dead body. The third, you anoint a king, you anoint a priest, you anoint a dead body, and, and she is anointing Jesus. And by the way, she's the only one who gets to anoint Jesus' body. Because when his mother and the others show up at the tomb... Spoiler alert, he's not dead anymore. So there's nothing to anoint. Mary is the only person who gets to anoint Jesus' body for burial. It's, it's miraculous to see this. It's such a beautiful, brilliant story, and I haven't even gotten to the most powerful part of this. The fact that she has given up a year's savings in this moment is just, is just incredible. So if there's anything else. It's not practical, even just for washing feet, this is not the way to do it. Jesus is going to use a towel and a basin when he does it in another chapter or two. Here she is doing it here. Beware of overly practical worship. Jesus is mirroring the Jews who are preparing for Passover, but she is the only one who seems to fully get it. This is what it means to prepare for Passover. It is to anoint and prepare the Passover lamb to be slaughtered. She is aware of Jesus' provision. And my guess is that in this moment, she did not ask herself, is Jesus worthy of this perfume? My guess is in this moment as Jesus is sitting in this banquet and she says, do I have anything that even approaches being worthy of Jesus? And then she thinks, the only thing I have that is even in the same playing field is that one pound bottle of spikenard that I'm saving for the most important day of my life because she realizes the most important day of her life is here. She gets it. This whole section, the rest of the book of John, even up until now, the last two chapters has been this. What are you gonna do with Jesus? Do you get it? Do you understand what's going on here? 
This is only the best. And then listen to this. So she, she, her heart and thought behind it, she pours it on his head. It drips down his body and his clothes. It pools at his feet. So Mary gets down on her hands and knees. And with her hair, she wipes his feet. Now this would be shocking today for you. If I called one of the women out of the crowd and I called a man out of the crowd and I had him take off his shoes and I said, I want you to wash his feet with your hair. You can see why I wouldn't reenact that on a Sunday morning, right? Because it would be scandalous. Like all the women in the room would be like, uh, no. No, I'm not, I'm not gonna, like, ooh. <laughs> and that's today, we have no concept of the Jewish heart about women's hair. Women's hair is a huge deal for the Jewish people, still to this day. In studying this, I got to go online and watch numerous debates going back and forth with Jewish women, Orthodox and practicing Jewish women, not on the question of whether or not their heads should be covered with, when they're around anyone but their husband, but what they're allowed to cover it with. I didn't even know this. Very often when you see a, a Jewish woman who practicing her faith still in the year 2019, what she's wearing is a wig over her hair. It may be a beautiful wig. It may be an expensive wig. This is the debate that's going on. Is whether or not they're allowed to wear a wig or whether they have to wear like a cloth head covering when they're in the presence of someone other than their husband because their hair is their glory. I'm quoting from the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, is it a disgrace for him? I don't, I don't understand Paul's reasoning there, but that's okay. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. This isn't the apostle Paul declaring something here. No, no. This is him verbalizing something that every Jewish woman in the world would already have proclaimed. Their hair is their glory. They literally will wear a wig that looks maybe better than their real hair in order to cover up their real hair because their real hair is their glory and their glory is only for their husband. They cover it up because it's none of your business, mister, what my hair looks like. Only my husband gets to know my real hair. When you want to shame a Jewish woman, and this is done in the Old Testament, shaming a Jewish woman, you shave her head. The ultimate expression of shame is to shave a woman's head. It's a re-identifier. Like literally in the, in the Bible, when they capture a woman from a foreign nation, the way they re-identify her as a Jew is they shave her head, and then over the next month, as her hair begins to grow back in, it, she is becoming a Jew as her hair grows in. It's, an, it's, it's unbelievable how important we cannot. The closest we've come to, the closest I think we ever come to, would be the few of you in the room who understand the significance of African-American women's hair. Right? The, the African women's hair is a big deal. We have, since we have an African-American daughter, we regularly will have women stop and give us advice about her hair because it's a big, big deal in, that, in their community. I, I wouldn't have known that. I have no reason to know that until I have an African-American daughter. And people who are real positive about it, all the, all positive about us doing that all the time, but it's, it's, it's interesting how often. There are whole websites about white people trying to take care of black girl hair. It's, 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 it's that much a different world. Um, and it's, again, you, you, we don't usually stop each other and comment on that in regards to the white world with this. It's a big deal. Even that, though, the Jewish world. It, I think, 
as we're talking about it between, John said, this is literally, you, we're supposed to read this like John going like this. And he washed her, he, she, she washed his feet, she wiped his feet off the oil with her hair. Her hair. This is scandalous. This is unthinkable. No woman of standing would ever do this. It is unthinkable. Like, we, we almost can't wrap our brain around it. As amazing as it would be for one of you ladies to wash someone's feet with your hair, it is a it is hundred times that socially for her to do this in public like this. It's, it's amazing. Um, this is what she pays. It is the ultimate debasement, the ultimate humiliation for her to do this. It is the ultimate expression of him as Lord. I have no dignity outside of you, and so I give it all to you. Think of this. It's, it, not only is she giving away a fortune in order to worship Jesus in this moment, but with everything she has, it, it really is a little bit of a, of, a, of a, a Martha is doing this amazing thing and Mary's like, call and raise all in, everything I have. And at the end of this moment, Mary would have had nothing else to, that she could possibly give except maybe her life. And I actually think for a Jewish woman, that would have been way easier. I think maybe that's true for many of us. How much has Christ purchased for us? How much has he pardoned us? What is this like? Her hair, the abandon, just, just the abandon with which she gives all she has here is so extreme. It's, it's not about the money, it's about what that kind of money would have meant. It's, not, it's, it's about the, the act. She could have, a wealthy person could give this and it not mean anything in their heart. It's not about the service in and of itself, it's about what she's doing and why she's doing it. And, and and we're going to get the ultimate expression of what do you do with Jesus? This is one answer. You worship with everything. With abandon. We debate on the word reckless. To wreck means to measure. Um, we talk about how Brennan Manning says that God's love for us is reckless and raging. And technically, I don't think that's true. I think God's love for us is very much so measured. What is shocking is not that it's unmeasured, but that it is measured and then paid I don't think Mary is unaware of the value of her alabaster jar of perfume. I think she knows perfectly well what it's worth. And it may be worth more to her than even the dollar amount. She certainly knows the value of getting down on her hands and knees and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. She certainly understands that. And you know what? She doesn't care. What is this type of worship like? What's it like to worship with this type of abandon? I know we've spent a lot of time here... But to quote the pulpit commentary, which doesn't lend itself towards poetry, by the way, this is what they wrote at the end of this section. The whole house of God, ever since, capital W, capital H, capital G, the whole house of God, ever since, has been filled with the fragrance of her immortal and prophetic act. We all smell the nard that she poured out 2,000 years ago on Jesus. This is huge. Jesus, Judas is not going to get it. This last passage, I want to close on this passage from Luke. When this happens at another time in his life, and, and another Simon, Simon the Pharisee, he gets offended that a woman does this for Jesus in his house. Simon the Pharisee gets offended because he doesn't understand it in the same way Judas doesn't. And Jesus is going to... So a woman does this, comes into Simon's house, does this in Luke chapter 7. 
Simon calls her and Jesus out, and this is Jesus' response. Just listen. I'm not going to put it on the screen. Just listen. Jesus says, a certain money lender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, a year's wages. The other owned 50, a little over a month. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them loved him more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Offensive question. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. This is a clear opportunity for us to recognize ourselves It isn't whether Simon the Pharisee needed the forgiveness. It's whether he knew he needed the forgiveness. And here you have a woman who is called a sinner in this passage. Many have accepted that she is a prostitute. A woman who is called a sinner. And here she is wiping Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, Your sins, they are many. My mercy is more. I pray that we have that kind of attitude of worship. I don't even know what it would be like. I don't know what it would be like. But as we worship, John knows that maybe one of the greatest things anybody could say after a sermon is that it made them feel dangerous. I love that. I hope you feel dangerous when it comes to worship this week. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to serve you and worship you. Thank you for the power of your word to lead us and teach us. Thank you for Mary. Thank you for Martha and her example of serving and using her gifts in powerful ways. Again, this account is created because of Martha's faithfulness and Mary's faithfulness to go all in, to leave nothing back, to pour out all she had. God, I don't even know. It's shocking to consider. It's scary to consider what it would be like to have that kind of heart for you. God, I pray that you will challenge us to worship like Mary did in spirit and in truth with all that she had. Lord, as we continue to look at this passage next week, I pray we continue to be challenged, just as was intended by your Spirit, that we would be challenged by the power of this act of worship. God, I pray that we will be changed by the power of your Word. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen.